This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Aravinda Himadra. Aravinda has been a spiritual teacher since 1999. He's the founder of the organization Sambodha, a multinational organization dedicated to elevating consciousness around the world. Sambodha serves its vision through teaching the art of compassion, spreading the study of Dharma-aligned spiritual knowledge, applying internal transcendental practices, teaching advanced meditation techniques, and supporting externally-oriented service offerings. With Sounds True, Aravinda has written a new book. It was originally published in German and became an international bestseller and is now published in the English language for the first time called Immortal Self, A Journey to the Himalayan Valley of the Amartya Masters, where he offers a transformative story that will invite you to challenge your preconceptions, open your heart, and receive the wisdom that your soul has always known. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Aravinda and I spoke about the unique teachings of the Amartya Masters and how and why Aravinda has become a spokesperson for this tradition in our time. We also talked about his journey to the hidden Himalayan valley where these masters live and how you need to be invited in order to go there. We also talked about some of the boundary-breaking experiences Aravinda had in his travels, including meeting Amartya masters who were hundreds of years old. Here's my mind-opening conversation with Aravinda Himadra. Aravinda, your book, Immortal Self, tells a truly remarkable story. I think some people would say an absolutely unbelievable story. For people who are unfamiliar with you and the arc of the story that you tell in Immortal Self, give us a sense of the journey that the book covers. All right. It um, I, I can, um, it is a rather, you know, when you approach this book, because it's really much more of an Eastern air in the background, um, it does come across as a, a, a really novel or unique experience to the Western perception. And so if I was to begin with, and if I was to really actually talk directly to the reader and to give him, you know, an orientation, I'd suggest that he try reading it in either of two ways. Um, the first being either as a narrative or chronicle um, that unfolds uh, a personal spiritual quest, obviously mine, 
And uh, but while I was writing it, my background intention in writing this book was to render it readable in a way that would allow him or her, the reader, to identify with it, matching it to be his or her own journey. So I tried to make it as personal and available as possible. And so the story follows my travels through some remote and very difficult to traverse passes, mountains in the Himalayas, possibly in approaching it with this this more of a narrative um, or, or chronicle perspective. Um, it, it, in this way, it could, the reader might also experience it as, a, as an adventure that includes um, the revealing or unearthing of a variety of ancient spiritual teachings on the way and also in the destination, which is discovered there, um, some of which offer uh, undoubtedly um, some of the most uh, unique knowledge that... that um, comes from the East. It's unparalleled in its view and s- into some of our most world's most mysterious and really long-lost knowledge, sacred knowledge. I say lost because some aspects of this knowledge haven't been available for a very, very long time. Um, and there's plenty of experience, knowledge included, that is already that's already common knowledge to the Euro-Western world, or at least the Euro-Western world has to some extent come in contact with it. And, and, and oftentimes you know, this happens through other writers or in, in, in on the, obviously on the Internet because we live in a digital age. Um, but um, for myself, I was very careful. I was very, um, uh, very, moved very slowly to make sure that all of the knowledge um, that I, because it's not always reliable on the Internet, knowledge isn't, or some sources or just borrowed sources from other sources. But these, these sources were very direct and of knowledge. So I, I was very careful to keep the knowledge in the story accurate true to form. And uh, so if I was to imagine myself as the reader, not the writer, I'd choose to read it as a true-to-life novel. I'd see it as an evolving cathartic adventure about a once-in-many-lifetimes journey. So in writing the book, from the very onset, I hope that it might in some way serves, serve as a, as a kind of allegorical pathway example, a kind of spiritual template that anyone in search of truth or knowledge could use to expand his or her understanding of our spiritual or their spiritual path in life. Now, Aravinda, when I think through the book as an allegorical story, mm-hmm. I can follow everything and there's so much we can talk about. When I think of it as this actually happened to Aravinda, then I have a bunch of other questions that come up for me as a reader. Really? That really happened? Can you answer this second reader's set of questions? Meaning, at a certain point, you encounter an ancient master who levitates. I'm just giving this as an example. And I think at that point, certain people would be, really, did this actually happen? Or is this just Aravinda trying to break open my mind to new possibilities to think in a different kind of way? Well, I certainly do hope that it opens people's minds and it causes them to think in another way, because I think oftentimes we've become so pragmatic in our thinking and so um, so focused on the mainstream parameters that we're living in, that we lose some of the real magic in life that's actually there all the time. 
and for anyone that has traveled the spiritual journey and really plunged the depths and has really gone into the heart of their journey, they realize that reality isn't what it seems to be. There's much more to it than um, what we what we're actually seeing. In fact, most everything that we see is just a translation in a little five seven centimeter space in the back of the brain that we all uniquely translate for ourselves. Somehow we all come into this a common agreement, and then we set up boundaries around that. But those boundaries are relatively new in in our human adventure in our our, our movement through time, and there there is a, another world a much larger world and much more profound world that lives outside of those boundaries and that's the world that i was able to walk into i mean i started with that not just in this journey where i went to the Himalayas, but that was really what i woke up into into this life and it's a difficult um thing to to transfer to someone else uh, to give people the idea um, that there is something beyond boundaries. There's a large group of people now that seem to be waking up in the world, and I think, Alistair, you probably touch the lives of those individuals quite often. But I'm, I'm really, at this point in time, um, telling a story that is very much like the kind of story you would have heard maybe uh, 100 years ago or 200 or 300 years ago, where it wasn't considered so fantastic in the East because this is the lifestyle that the deeper spiritual traditions moved through or, or, or cultured. So it's fantastic to the Western world because the, very, the, just the slightest little thing that's outside of the norm doesn't make sense, and we, we seem to, as a culture, as a society, try to find safety within certain boundaries. And this book will no doubt break a lot of boundaries for people. And I have to answer the second question because the second question is the right question. Yes, it really did happen. This is really an experience of mine, and and it's difficult to convey because I have no, um, no, what do we say, tangible way of giving absolute validity to that, other than through leading people into the experience and then offering them the means somehow through either seminars or contact or introducing them to certain teachers so that they can actually make the connection for themselves. And that's really the way this tradition, the Amartya tradition, is. It's, it's Amartya tradition is actually very, very old. It, it, it seems to be that it, when I learned about it, when I discovered it, it, I haven't found yet, and I've spent my entire life you know, on the spiritual um, path, yet any tradition that I can say is really older or uh, goes further back in time or seems to be, in, in some ways I could say, the Amartya tradition is timeless because there doesn't seem to be an actual origin of it. And But coming into this life, I already felt that very young. I once had a person uh, that, that um, walked up to me and said, you know, what are you, are you... Uh, because he, you said you found your way into this valley, and, and you did. How, how is it possible that you can do that and someone else couldn't do that? And and it took me a little bit off balance because I wasn't expecting that kind of a question. But then I realized, well, why are you asking me that question? Why aren't you asking yourself that question? Why are you not allowing yourself to move beyond the boundaries? Because in this world that we live in. It, it's not difficult to see it. 
because even science is val- validating that now. Our reality is made out of uh, a kind of field of potential that doesn't show up unless we're searching for it. Once we search for it, we start to bring those possibilities into existence. Now, this isn't spiritual alone. This is now physics. We're moving into an area where we can see, in not, in, not just in, in quantum physics, but we're also seeing this taking place in neurophysics and neurosciences, that if we focus on specific possibilities, those possibilities come about. And our world has narrowed itself over time. There are, of course, the old soul um, sort of awarenesses. I'm using that term old soul. It's a little bit new agey, but I'm using it to bring across the point. There are these these um, uh, people that have a, a, a memory or a, a sort of uh, an aspect of themselves that knows these things still exist. And this is really where I find most people are responding. Most people are writing emails. I've, I've literally received hundreds of emails um, from people that have said, I, when I read your book, Aravinda, I felt like I was coming home. I knew this was true, but somehow my life had taken me away from that possibility. And I think that's one of the underlying currents in this book. And so, I mean, I, I, I realized that in, in somewhere in the 19... I think, I think it was in the 80s where I first discovered... Rumi's uh, poem, There is a Field, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing. There is a field, I will meet you there. When the self lies down in that grass, the world is too grand to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other no longer make any sense. That's what I wanted to connect people to. I wanted to connect people to that field. It's in the background of the journey. And if people allow themselves that, they very, it may be that they very well will have an experience that will connect this for them directly. Um, I've had uh, um, many, many people tell me, and I, I'm not, and I say many, I'm talking not, probably close to 100 people um, come to me and say that when they gave themselves to the possibility, something extraordinary happened, something magical happened in their lives to verify it for them. And, and I, I believe that's possible for us all the time, but we are surrounded in a, in a very um, narrow set of parameters. And, and, and I, I, I can understand, I think anyone can, how that can happen because society gravitates towards a safety zone and people learn to speak within that and communicate within that, and pretty soon we find within a short period of time that people have set up boundaries. And this, this boundary and this boundary, we, that's taboo. We do not cross those boundaries, and so we limit our thinking. And we start to think that, that what is actually more real, that is actually deeper and truer about us, is the fantasy, and what is not true about us is the reality. And that's the kind of society that we really live in globally right now. We live in, a, in a, an illusory society and not a true society where consciousness is the foundation for everything. Instead, we, we seem to be in this perspective that we have, we have projected ourselves into our universe and we are not its creators anymore. And, and that, that loss has caused us to doubt when the beauty, the sacredness shows its face to us. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so to get through that, I, I don't think we can, we can debate or argue that with anyone. Like for if I was to be in contact with somebody who says, well, Irvin, it's just very hard for me to believe. And I can't say to them, well, I'm going to convince you because there was, it, there's no, it, so that's a topical conversation. The only way to understand that this sacredness exists is to transcend that topical conversation and go to the source within ourselves and touch the magic there. And, and if, if we can allow that person or ourselves to, to stay there long enough, that magic comes back with things that are so much more um, beautiful and sacred and real than what we've imagined our lives to be. And in that sense, I think that this, this book is a kind of groundbreaker for that. I think it will, as it has, at least it's, this has been the evidence of, uh, that's come through the conversations and the, mm-hmm. and the many contacts I've made since people have been reading the book, particularly in Germany, it's, which is a little surprising because, you know, my experience of Germany, I don't know who other people feel to, there's a very, very sort of fixed way of saying things. They're, they're very um, mechanical about the perceptions. But I, what I have actually experienced on this, spiritual renaissance that seems to be taking place under cover there is this extraordinary humility that's forming and kind of listening that is opening them up to to the beauty of of what really truly is real. Now, I noticed, Arvinda, in my own experience of reading Immortal Self, I kind of had two tracks going on. In one track, I was with you in this transmission of Himalayan spirituality, if you will, meaning I felt the depth and the dazzling, sparkling, boundlessness, and so much of what you were trying to, and I think communicated beautifully in your writing. And then on this other track, some part of my mind would kick in and I'd like put a big question mark down on the page next to the paragraph and I was like, ah, oh, come on. And I want to talk about some of those and, and have you give our listener a better feeling. So here, here we'll go right in the very beginning of the book. You dedicated the book to one of the Amartya masters that you met in oh, your travels. Yeah. And you say that you're dedicating this book to this person who left his body behind in 2011 at the age of 164. And then later in the book, you write that he was young compared to the other Amartya masters <laughs> that you met. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? How old are these people and how did they get to live so long? Yeah, that's the, um, that's the real mystery, isn't it? Because what we have here is uh, um, something that's so completely contrary to what we believed to be true in our world. Today we think the oldest man is somewhere around 115 or something like that in the world. And, and of course, you know, in our history, we, we can find records of individuals that have lived, you know, 175, 180, and older than that. If we were to do the research, we'd find out. Even in our Western history, we've had some individuals that are very old. We go into the Chinese history, we get come in contact with people that have been much older, even in the early Egyptian periods. There's knowledge of these individuals that live generations. Biblically, we see and listen to individuals that have lived very, very long periods of time. And, of course, what, once again, here, 
in our world, we live within what, if we're lucky, you know, somewhere between 90 to 100 years. If we live a good life, we live a healthy life, that's somewhat the limit. That's the top end. And, and so we say, how is it possible anyone could live longer than that? And, and we have to actually also, we have to look at this as not necessarily a genetic condition, that there is there are possibilities that we can manifest with our own physiology that if we were not standing in a constant resistance to what must come in life and what must go in life. In other words, we as people um, have a tendency through our understanding of who we think we are because we identify with the kind of being I am this and this which I am has these requirements and this is what I want and this is what I don't want and yet the universe doesn't seem to care about that. Um, the universe says this is what you get and this is what I'm going to take kind of like the the image of Kali in, in India it's, you know, the fierce, most powerful of all of the goddesses she's the goddess of time she says you can have this and I will take this and there's nothing that you get to keep but as people, we have a tendency to resist, and we build resistance into our physiology, and we build it into our mind, into our neural structure. We build it into the cells of our bodies. And that resistance is really fundamentally um, what ages us, if anything else. More than anything else, we are burning ourselves out by standing in the, in the force of that wind and resisting, saying, I want the universe to conform to my will. It must be what I want. And rather than listening to that, there is actually something deeper. Now, there, today, we will find that there are certain neurophysicists who are saying that, well, it, it appears that our, our neural structure is somehow being fed by something that is larger than what we have considered to be our psyche, that there is a universal awareness. Same thing, we see this happen in, in quantum physics where you have entanglement. You can say that through when you have two different atoms that have interacted, you separate them, or two particles, you separate them and move them at great distances apart with each from each other. If you touch one, you instantly affect the other one without any passage of time between them. And so there are, there's a scientific movement towards understanding that there is another dimension, another field that seems to be what we're resting in that is not governed by the same principles that we are governed by in our common everyday thinking. And within that field, we are all ultimately unified. We're all sharing a similar field. And that field in the East has always been considered the ultimate or the supreme creative intelligence that is our our truest self, our highest self-expression, or maybe it isn't even our highest self-expression, I'd say our highest source, the expression ultimately being life. And, and if that's the case, then this self, this high level, this unified field, seems to be unfolding a universe that is outside of our normal perception. of If we were to perceive that there is a greater will at work, more powerful will at work, and our little will trying to be this little person that has identified itself with these attributes and traits, struggling to 
keep those attributes and traits uh, as the paramount and most important thing in their lives, fights against this will that says, no, this is what will come in your life, and this is what must go in your life, because this is what this act that takes place from this greater field is somehow managing the entire field at once. Now, if that's our ultimate con, con, um, level of consciousness, then if we were to tune ourselves with that and allow that to become the manifesting voice through us, we wouldn't experience the burn of time on our consciousness, and, and we would structure in a different reality. I, the way I'm, I probably would probably finish this statement is there's a teacher, Maharishi Patanjali, you've probably heard of him, who was considered the father of yoga. He, he inherited a certain body of knowledge from the Shramana tradition, which is known as, which came from Mahavirya, of the Jain tradition. And he made a statement. He said that, he, he said, yoga, yoga chiti vriti narots. And he said, if, if the pressures or the resistances, which are emotions or tendencies in the mind, were all brought to rest, in other words, in, brought to the floor of creation from where everything comes from, the, this, this um, now presence, true now presence. And if it came to rest, what would remain is our highest state of consciousness, yogas, our unified field of consciousness. So what's happened is that we have pushed ourselves um, beyond that harmony into this discord in life, and so we have created a kind of resistance. And so we have blocked ourselves from, through our emotions, through our resistances, from that source. Now, in an illumined state, a highly illumined state, the state of a true master, that state is accomplished. Prabodhana uh, um, or sambodhi, which, which is called the enlightenment, occurs. That means there is no longer any resistance in the conscious mind, in the neural net, in the physiology, because the neural net ultimately governs the physiology. And so that higher will that, that brings everything into existence and carries it through, and through our perceptions, we, we participate in the creation of the universe, and we also participate in its, its return to source. So we become these instruments, these vehicles for this to occur, but there is no burn in our consciousness. Now, if we know how to function, if we learn how to function from that level of consciousness, because that's where we live, then what we do is we, we find that we are inevitably at one with that consciousness. And that consciousness is, is what outlasts all of our lifetimes. It, it is that one field that is eternal. And, and it's, it is the ultimate creative intelligence. Now, imagine that. If that is the reference for your reality, fully, if that is the reference for your reality, why wouldn't you be able to re realize the attributes of that state of consciousness? Why wouldn't you be able to bring that forth as, an, as a manifestation through that physical experience of life? Let me ask you a personal question, Aravinda. You're, you're 65 at this point? I am, yes. 
Do you have any expectation of how long you'll live? I mean, you're not going to buy into the 90 to 100, or you, you know, but yet, I mean, even these masters whom you met on your journey in the Himalayan Valley, they died at some point. They do. In fact, I was told that um, 300 years ago, there were 16 of these masters that were still living in, in a community. And now there's only um, the five. And um, when Master Fowl left, I could feel it. It was because I feel I, my days are filled with moments that I can feel that connection. And it's very strong. It's as though um, there's no real separation for me anymore. And so when Master Pfau passed on, um, I realized that, you know, when it took place, that it was his time, his choice to leave. And, and this is where I, I have to say, in terms of immortality, I don't believe there are any absolutely immortal beings on this planet at this time. The Amartya tradition doesn't claim to be even though Amartya means... That's the first re- totally reasonable thing I think you've said, Aravinda. No, I'm just <laughs> joking with you. But the, the truth is that everything has a, a, a time period. The, the, the nature, or what you, call, we, you would call the um, Samima Siddhi level of consciousness that the, the, the Amartyas have attained, is that they choose when that will be. So... The, the tradition is, is, is in itself, uh, you could describe it as um, they have overcome even death, but not entirely. So what I'm saying is that every, all the emerges at some point leave, but they do live extraordinarily long lives. For myself, I don't perceive that as really that likely. And the reason is I, I don't live there in the valley. In the valley, when I was there, um, I, what I experienced was a kind of clarity or crystal clarity that was something I hadn't ever experienced before in this life. Uh, it's a little bit like coming out of dirty water and suddenly you're in crystal clear mountain stream water. Everything changes. You, your thoughts become very focused and clear and crisp. And, and I, I believe it was Amir who actually said to me it was because there was no, never any kind of violence or or intensity or, or violation within the land, the sacredness of the land or that area. So the valley is a, is a kind of temple in itself on, on this planet. And, and, and I, I do believe it has something to do with their reclusiveness. Um, it's not a religion. The Tumarcha tradition isn't a religion, so it's not, or not organized as, a, as, a, as a, something that actually comes out into the world in the same way that religion might, which is, um, you know, trying to find followers and so on. It's, it's really a more of a from master to, to student kind of transmission that takes place and the knowledge is passed forward. I guess it has been for a very, very long time. And, and uh, I, I think what, what happens is because they are able to sustain that level of purity in the area that they live in, they choose to be there most of the time. That's not to say that they aren't there I mean, they don't leave there because I know that that. I was one day in the valley, and I was I was talking to Master Rambala, and um, I had seen seen um, um, Amir just hours before I was speaking with him, and I asked if I could go speak with Amir if he knew where he was, and he said, "Oh, he's 
in that direction about 50 miles. And I said, that, how is that possible? How could he have gone from here to there in a few hours? And then, of course, there was a teaching that followed, and I learned a great deal about how those things are accomplished. And, and when you realize it, how it actually happens that these things occur, you start to recognize that there's a science to it. It's not, And there's a way of being that is not familiar to our Western way of being, but there, we are capable of things that we don't yet fully understand in the Western world. And one of those um, is... As you questioned this, you were asking, how is it possible that these people could be this old? Um, my feeling is it's very... I, I think that, that we're, we're going to find out within the next few hundred years, people will start to be able to, just through mechanical means, um, medical means, be able to live two, three, four hundred years. That's coming very soon. Now, and I think that that is is actually much more topical than what they've accomplished. They've accomplished something that is completely different than that, in so much as that they have actually gone to the root of consciousness and have been able to establish a way of being that that coherence of it, the, the intensity of it, has, to some extent, um, created a kind of buffer between them and the gravity, the world gravity. I'm in the world gravity now, even on Orcas Island, where it was very peaceful and very lovely here. I'm still in the world gravity. I could feel it when I was leaving the valley. It was like uh, there was a point where I had gone a certain number of miles. I don't know exactly, maybe it was 10 miles out of the valley. And it felt like I was standing with a next to a downdraft, like the kind of pull you'd feel in an elevator shaft. And the more I walked into it, the more difficult it became um, to integrate for a while. So it took, you know, for a few days, I was really struggling with I wanted to go back to the valley because of the intensity of the world. And the more I got into the world, the more I was into the Western world, when I finally got back to Delhi, it was extraordinarily intense. Um, so, and I got on the plane, flew back, and of course, I was picked up at the airport. And, and it was like being in a completely different world. And I realized that, how is that difference? What's, the di- what's causing that? It's, it's our consciousness. It's, mm-hmm. it's our collective consciousness that is producing this world vritti or this world gravity that is causing us to remain stuck in this narrow set of parameters and say, this is how long you live, this is how you live, this is what you can experience, this is what you can't experience. When really we have the talents within us to to enter a magic that is that that we haven't even begun to explore you're listening to insights at the edge produced by sounds true we welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge.
Now, I'm imagining, Arvinda, people who are listening, and they're like, okay, I'm ready to pack my backpack, and I'm going to the valley where the Amartya masters still are. I'm on my way right now, you know, even as I'm listening to this. But of course, they probably won't find it. So can you explain that? Yeah, it's if you go to um, some of the different uh, temples in India, for instance, in Orissa at the Sun Temple, or if you go to um, like when well, when I was in Rajasthan, or and, and even in some parts of the Himalayan foothills in the more remote areas, the legend there of this this valley still exists, um, and people still tell t- stories about it, but almost no one is there able to find it, and unless, of course, you're invited. And um, I, I, even when I was invited, I have to be honest, I, I didn't think I could find it. That was my honest belief. I just, I just applied my faith and said I was invited, so I must be able to find this. And it, it became, in itself, a kind of test of my own faith. And, and so as I was traveling through the mountains, there was one period where I had finally come to a point of exhaustion and I realized that uh, I was at a point of no return and I had to look at my own life and I had to make a a decision Um, because everything I had done to that point brought me to that point. Everything that I had worked with, everything that I had searched for, all the experiences that had any meaning to me had brought me to that moment where I had come to the point of no return. Because if I'd go any further, I knew I wouldn't come be able to make it back. And there are parts of the Himalayas that you can get, if you go too far, even the Sherpas won't go into those areas. It's too far, it's too remote, and there's too much chance of exposure and, and dying in, the, in those elements. And as I, just as I got that far, I realized I was actually in a kind of fog. I couldn't, I couldn't know for sure which way to go anymore. And... It was then that I had met in the book, which you, which has been the story of the flute, where I actually um, was able to meet uh, Master Amir, Narmad Kalarohan. When I met him, he was able to bring me the rest of the way, and he explained to me that there is a, a kind of, and it's very old, but it was created by the elder of uh, the Pitama, the grandfather Pitama, the elder of the Manches, it's a kind of shtag mudra. It's, it's, um, where I'm, of course, I hope I'm not confusing the listener because these are terms that are probably very foreign and very Eastern, and, and they're Sanskrit terms. But shtag mudra is a kind of protective veil um, that protects the area. And I, I, if I was to say, well, what is that? How do you experience that? Is a feeling when, for instance, when we're wandering, if anyone has ever gone hiking in the forest or or maybe as uh, maybe lost, gotten lost in some some walking through meadows or something, and you start to wonder which way do I go next? You 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 can, we can kind of have this intuitive urge that says go this way, and we usually find our way if we're listening. We can usually find our way back. There's a there's an inherent intuitive quality within all of us. If we're listening well enough, we can usually find our way out of the worst situations. But here what I found was the urging always seemed to be at some point directing my attention in another direction. And it was explained to me that that's what the Shpatstag Mudra produces. It's a kind of um, energetic that has been cultured over a period of time. 
so that when you go there in those in that area, it's not as though you can't find it. It's just your tendency is to go into a different direction. And I'm not sure that if, my, if um, uh, Master Amir wouldn't have met me there, if I would have actually have found it. I, I was within a day's walk of it, uh, a long day's walk of it. But I had come to the point where I was actually really not just tired and worn out, but I was also um, questioning, could I find it any further? Because up until then, it seemed that I had a kind of inner compass that was leading me. Um, after that, I was really grateful that he was there. Mm-hmm. He, and he was able to guide me the rest of the way. And, and when he did, it was really, we made quite a number of turns in our walk that I wouldn't have made. I realized I wouldn't have made those turns. So yeah, there is a, there's a protection there. And, and I asked, uh, I mean, it was really Master Rumbaugh who told me, well, why? I asked him once, you know, about the possibility of other people coming and he said, well, it would destroy the, the valley and, and what they've created there because he said that, you know, everyone would try to come, would love to come to this if they realize what's possible, what they could learn in in this kind of a setting. Uh, but it, it would be foolish for me to think in any way that this wouldn't ultimately be the end of that. And so that transition me into realizing, well, there's another way. It's the way they're already functioning, the way they're already connected with the world. These, these, they're very much um, aware of everything that's going on in the world, and they're, but they're, they're not responding very much to people in need. In other words, when people say, oh, please help me, I want this, can you do this for me? I, I don't see them in their, their purity and their innocence responding to that. What I observed was they respond to when people say, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to move this way. I'm willing to take responsibility. And then there seems to be a surge of, of energy and support that comes from them, which is somewhat different than if someone would say, well, prayer will get me there, wouldn't it? Actually, no, you wouldn't. It's actually the affirmation of, of, of faith that gets people where they need to go. There may be individuals out there, maybe individuals out there that might be connecting somehow with the tradition. I don't feel it at this time, but it's possible someone else can go there. I was, as far as I know, I was the first Euro-Westerner to have come anywhere near the valley for well over 90 years. That's over 100 years now. And the last person that had gone there didn't actually enter the valley. But there were people there um, that seem to have connection to the Western world. I saw flip-flops on their feet. I saw T-shirts on, on a few people. Those are Western. Obviously, there's a connection to the world there. But um, exactly how much and who is connecting, I'm not really you know, convinced that I know. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you write, Aravinda, that the Amartya masters agreed that you should be the first for hundreds of years to speak or write openly about the Amapura Valley. And I'd love to know why you, Aravinda Himadra, and why now? Yeah, that there, is, um, there are moments where I've actually asked that question myself. And, and, uh, but um, for when I was born in this, into this lifetime, um, I, I was born with a certain degree of seeing open. 
you know, I was able to um, perceive things that that were outside of my normal parameters of life. And even at the age of six, I had my first contact with one of the emerges in my bedroom when I was sleeping at night because I had night terrors, quite a few night terrors when I was very young, and they were terrifying to the point where my body and the stress of my body um, couldn't take it. I was actually, uh, it it produced so much stress on my nervous system that it would produce these very intense, torrentious nosebleeds, even to the point where I would have to have transfusion once because of the loss of blood. And, and, but it was all brought on by this terror. And, and when I, I felt the most hopeless, I just opened myself up to the possibility for, for days. I would maybe, I would say more like months, actually, I would climb up to the top, out my bedroom window, and sit on the top roof of my house, and I would look up at the moon because I imagined the moon somehow to be this mystical connection to to God. Because I always imagined God was a woman, you know. So I always thought it was she, was a she, and I saw because I had to be a mother, you know. And, and so I saw the moon as sort of a mother image for me, and so I would go into conversation. And I remember one night laying up there. Um, and not wanting to go to bed because of the night terrors and and uh, asking. I looked up and I said, you know, it's like, I'm, I don't know what to do here. It wasn't so much I asked for help, but I said, I'm at my end. I'm a little, you know, I'm just a little kid. I'm just, I don't know how to manage this. I'm just you know, barely capable of climbing out my window and getting up on the roof, you know. And so it, at that point in time, I, I my feeling was this extraordinary vulnerability in, the, in that, Within a few nights, that was my first contact with Amir, who managed somehow to be there in the middle of the night. And the story in the in the Immortal Self, the book, I, I talk about that to some extent. It's quite a bit because the full knowledge of what happened there didn't really occur to me until I was in India, in Rajasthan, in a cave, um, and it was confronted by a very very intense darkness. And that's when the whole knowledge of that came through for me and why that was there and how that ended up making me stronger. But that connection, I realized even then, was something much older than than my lifetime. And so over my life, numerous times in meditations, I would have visions. And these visions would open me up to um, connections to the marches themselves. And and so I would draw teachings from them. And the only I didn't at that time, in my life I had chosen not to really, um, when I was teaching, I began to teach quite a bit because that became a way of, uh, of finding fulfillment in life. But I didn't want the attention to land on me, so I'd always pass it forward. I would say, I received this knowledge from something I did or something I connected with. I would never really tell the whole story because I live in a very conservative reality in a conservative world. And But all the time during that entire journey of my life, I knew that I was connected to something that was very old. And when I connected with Master Rumbala, I didn't realize it right away, but I began to realize that at some point in time, he had been my father. And the more I gave myself to that, the more I began to realize what that 
meant for me and that I had actually left that valley um, quite a, you know, at least three lifetimes ago. And, and again, that's sort of stretching beyond the, the mainstream thought, but that's, for me, that's the reality I lived in. But beyond mainstream and, and alternative, we're out in the great expanse at this point, Aravinda, but keep going because it's so fascinating. Okay. So what ended up happening was I had it verified. When I was in, when I did come to the valley, um, it, was, it was like I'd met my father for the first time for a very, very long time. Because in my memories, in these, these little hints of memories, sometimes faint, sometimes just partial memories of former lifetimes, I never really got to know my father. My father always died when I was a child, just as my earth father in this life died when I was a child. And so I never had a father connection until I came to the valley and I began to realize when I saw him, my heart broke open in this extraordinary memory of him having been my father and and all of that flooded back, all of the knowledge of having left the valley when I was only about 16 you know, and and began to teach him as a as a very young teacher in the Himalayas for that entire lifetime, and then again, you know, in my last lifetime, I taught again, and you know, I died in December '50 and came back in in '53, and I these it all opened up. I could start to remember these things. It wasn't uh, I I don't I don't want to confuse people when I say these things to say oh. Arvind is a psychic. I'm not a psychic. I, I've never been a psychic. I never claimed to be a psychic. But I have certain abilities to see when I feel lack in the world and it draw to draw knowledge. But I can't tell you where you've lost your keys or, or you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but it works for me. It has worked for me my entire life. And that's how I found the valley. And, and so I, I realized when I came back to the valley... Um, they re- they were already aware of what I wanted to do because I had already given myself to teaching. I was teaching courses, classes, meditation. I was I was doing teacher trainings and a number of things. I'd been doing it since I was 17, 18, I think it was when I started. I had a little little store that I opened and I taught uh, Raja Yoga and I had a little bookstore and I, I just started early because I was really determined to be on my own very early and and I had an herb. I had. Um, I was selling herbs and doing herbal formulas for people being help, being healed. And and then I went to Seattle and I opened a really big, half a block bookstore. And my life had already moved into constantly um, trying to find ways of opening people up spiritually. But and I realized that it wasn't just that lifetime I was feeding off of that the energy off of that to keep me going. It was this other connection to the to the Amartya tradition. So they knew I was already a part of the Amartya tradition. And then it, really going back to the valley, it was as though I'd come full circle through a number of lifetimes. And this lifetime gave me my final fulfillment, I, I, which I haven't completed yet. I feel at this point in time I'm really engaging the reason I left the valley, although that reason has changed to some extent from my original reason. But it's now I'm in a stage where I actually feel like I'm, I'm trying to fulfill 
a promise that I've made. Not that I feel bound by that promise, but I feel enriched by it. What is that promise? That I would somehow try to bring this, this, this lost body of sacred knowledge back into the world for the support of others. And in, at a time that we all are starting to recognize, everyone is looking around today and going, what is going on? You know, we, we're in an incredibly corrupted structure. The economies are failing. We've got leadership that is, that is deeply corrupted and failing the world. And there's a separation between leadership and people. The environment is crumbling. And we're seeing the potential of an actual extinction occurring on this planet. And it doesn't have to be that way. It, it's really, it's, if, if we would be able to find our, our spiritual essence against our pure creative intelligence within ourselves and learn to, to manifest those harmonics back into life, we, we could take this world from Adharma back to Dharma and we could actually um, heal this world rather than destroy it and we could experience a birth rather than an extinction. And, and bringing this knowledge forward from the valley seems to be a piece of that from what I'm doing, from what our, my tradition is trying to do. And I do believe there are other traditions in the world that are doing the same thing in their own way, that are trying to come and say, look, we've forgotten. We've forgotten ourselves. We've forgotten something much more important than this, this surface reality that we're now living in, that there was once a time when we could, we could, we could just listen to the wind and know that the... the the changing seasons, we could, we could touch the tree people and, and know their spirits in there and what they were communicating between the elements and the earth and, and, and how we once had a sense of responsibility to nature and that we saw its richness and, and our need to take care of it and that we've lost ourselves in, in our identities and our, in our drive for riches and fame and, 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 and we need to return to something, not we can't go back to simply being grassroots individuals that we couldn't survive that way. But we can evolve ourselves past this this um, destructive thing that is going on. And but we'll, we have to first bring ourselves back to the core of our beings to be able to do that. We can't do this on a, on a topical mental level where the world is built out of, of debates and competition. We have to bring it to this place where we are not in a state of separation where we can actually raise our consciousness by going deeper within ourselves. And that's what I believe that, that they were connecting with, with me, because I had get, already given myself to that. And, they, and because I asked them that at one point, I said, well, how is it that I can do this? I mean, this is really kind of breaking uh, some of the boundaries of the tradition itself, which is a very highly reclusive tradition. And they said, we already know that this is your destiny, that this is... The beauty of these masters isn't... There isn't a kind of hierarchy. There's a, there's a forever young kind of playful innocence and purity in their being. There's so little judgment. In fact, I don't think there's any. It's, it's more of an acknowledgement and a recognition of what should be... Um, that whatever it is that ultimately brings... The, the world into its you know higher potential expression, and they support that, and oftentimes in a very humorous and, and very very kind way, and that's how they really really approached me. The only 
thing that I was given, one warning, and that was by Master Rambala, and he said, it will be very, very difficult for the world to understand what it's like to stand between us and what we know and what the world is doing. That How difficult that position is. And I, I really didn't know what he meant until I came back to the world and realized that trying to bring magic to a world that is dug into a sort of pragmatic system of parameters isn't an easy world to navigate. No, you've got to talk to people like me who are, you know, <laughs> grilling you. Yeah, yeah. You, well, I think probably but looking at what you've done with your life that you knew that already a very long time ago, that that's the direction. Yeah. Okay, Aravinda, I just have two more questions for you. For people who, and I think many of our listeners, are hearing about the Amartra tradition for the very first time. This is the, they've never heard about this before. And you said these teachings are unique and unparalleled. And so far we've heard about their ancient roots, but we don't really know what's so unique and unparalleled about what the Amartya masters taught you. Well, there's quite a bit. One is the, the uh, it wasn't so much the, that they taught specific pieces of knowledge. I looked at some of the, the older knowledge, but some of it was, you know, I, I couldn't really read it. It was in a script that I, some Sino-Tibetan script that I couldn't decipher at all. But oftentimes I would be accompanied by, you know, in, in conversation, and I would well, what they would do is they would affirm thoughts, they would affirm ideas. And and some of what I'm trying to bring now is, is that there's different levels, of, because we need to we need to find a way in, not just a way to manage life the way it is, but to find a way to get to a place where the source of life is, is created and from there learn to listen in such a way that we can actually bring harmony and order back to this world. And so meditation is paramount for something like that. Um, so one of the things is that um, I've been given support in, for teaching um, not only the traditional knowledge, because we are now are teaching mantra in a way that is really old-school mantra, the way the mantra once was before it became um, secularized with religions, but in just the pure vibrational tones. And, and then... Um, Doing teaching transcendence, which or what you might call narodjama, the control of transcendence through the combination of these different um, things that some of the world already knows about, such as varagya, which is dispassion, viveka, which is discrimination between the real and unreal, asasta, learning to come to silence, these things, but now in new formulas, more advanced formulas. For instance, when Yogananda. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda brought forth the Kriya Yoga. He brought forth a very, very simple technique that the world, Western world was ready for at the time. But it's actually a very, very minor technique. And, and, and it's, it's also very, very, uh, it takes a great deal of time for somebody to actually evolve through that because it's even as, as beautiful as it is, um, which it is, and it was appropriate for its time. Our consciousness now seems to be um, plowing way ahead and so we need to have new and more potent techniques. And so we brought forth um, one technique called Trikanti, which means the three graces, which is a way of opening up the various meridians within the energy structure, the, 
Pranamakosha, the within the physical energy, physical physiology that will help people um, purify the meridians all the way down through the neural net to source. And and so then we have also what's known as Pavana, which is uh, a much, much, much more advanced form of Kriya than what the world has so far learned. In fact, Pavana isn't even a word that is used in India or anymore because it's so old, but it's a, it's a kind of um, tonal breathing that is a technique that can bring forth uh, very profound changes, but the technique is based on learning to tune your physiology to the elemental tones of creation itself, kind of like the way you would tune a, a violin or a, a musical instrument. You would listen and tune through your awareness to the, to the essential tones which are connected to the elements of creation themselves, like the Bhutas, the earth, fire, air, water, ether, so on. And that, as well as we're, we're trying to introduce what is most central to the Amartya tradition, which is known as the fourth path. And the fourth path is the way of compassion, but not compassion in the sense that um, we understand it in our normal sympathetic way or empathetic way, but the art of compassion, which is a kind of listening in the presence of the shadow and then transcending um, past the emotional boundaries to be able to hear the answer emerging through the floor of creation that then brings remedy to life. That's pretty big what I just said there. Mm-hmm. Most people may not be able to follow me with that. Mm-hmm. But it's a kind of, it's, a, it's the fourth path because we have three paths which are um, physical, and you know, it's action, karma, we have devotion, which is heart, and we have jnana, which is mind. Those are the three paths that the world knows, but the fourth path is karunya, and the world hasn't yet discovered that that, without having that intuitive ability to listen, that the three paths are fundamental, fundamentally un, unusable. You don't know what is the right action. You don't know what is the right devotion, and you don't know what is the right knowledge unless you can verify it within that inner cauldron of knowing that rests at the floor of creation. And so and the karunya takes you to that. So we want to return that so people can find that deeper inner guide within themselves so that they have a compass that's missing. Society is missing its compass, its moral compass, its heart compass. It's, instead, it's, it's, it's working in this reflective sort of chaos trying to find its way between rights and wrongs, but what's right for one person isn't right for the next. So how do we come to the point of knowing what is good for all beings? Because if we knew how to navigate those waters, we would ultimately all find fulfillment. Because it, there's, there are, as the Buddha said, there's, why do we meditate? We meditate to let go. Why do we let go? So that we can feel the currents of bliss. Well, the currents of bliss arise when we receive that that harmonic guidance from the floor of creation. Now, you're using this interesting phrase, Aravinda, listening at the level of the floor of creation. What do you mean by that, the floor of creation? Well, you know, if, if we were to compare, let's say, quantum physics to consciousness, we would say we have relative, class, relative classic physics. That's, I'm here because you're here. There's distance. There's, we live in a three-dimensional universe of of length, width, and height, well, four-dimensional with time. And, but 
there's a quantum world is that when we go into that relative existence, we can actually leave the laws of physics and enter a world where you can be in two places at once, or you could be you could be disappearing and reappearing in different places of the universe all the time, where the particles that make up consciousness, to make up consciousness, are ultimately um, living within a completely different set of rules than our, our classic reality is. And yet that's actually happening in our classic reality. So, but if we go a little bit further, we realize, well, where is everything appearing from and disappearing from? And, and, you know, the physicists will call it the Planck field, that place where you can't get any smaller into the quantum realms. In our human experience, when we meditate, we do something very similar. We go from our relative mind into this micro world of, of subtler and subtler states of awareness until we leave thought, the field, or the classic reality for another world that is unbounded. And eventually what we come to is a place of silence. And we, when we touch that silence, in the East that's called the Ritam Bharat, when we touch the silence, beyond that, we, we, are, we come in contact with this field of infinite potential. Well, this infinite potential is ultimately what is sustaining us as, as the dreamt, as these these things that we think we are, if you were to really, really see, if we didn't interpret within our brain what we are, we're just electromagnetic fields and wave potential and, and particles. We're, it's just a sea of dancing energy. But somehow, from the source of our being, collectively, because we're unified in the source, the floor of creation, we're able to maintain this semblance of a universe, of a world, and ourselves. But imagine that if we could go to that floor where this universe is unfolding from, and that we could live there, that we could live where we have available to us that complete field of potential, unfiltered by our wants or our emotions or our stresses or our chaos or our illusions, where we have pass beyond that. So when I speak of the floor of creation, I speak of that place. The ancients referred to that as the Ritam Bharat, which means the truth vastness. Today we would call that the membrane between the fourth and the fifth dimension in physics. But it's, it's really the same language that beyond the fourth dimension, there is a field, as Rumi ref refers to, the field beyond, you know, or it's too grand to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other no longer make any sense. And yet that's where everything comes from. And it's our consciousness, our consciousness, the free agent in our, our minds, not the mind itself. The minds are a product of the free agent's dreaming. But the free agent in the mind, to be able to touch upon the floor of creation, can invoke any possibility at all. That's the old school magic that we've lost. And that's what we want to bring back through the tradition. Aravinda, I could talk to you for a long time. There's a lot of really interesting things to talk to you about, but I'm just going to ask you one final question here, which is you mentioned in this conversation that every day you're in touch 
with the Amartya masters, that your consciousness is linked to theirs, is what I interpreted from what you said. And I'm curious, in this very moment, in that linkage, if you have a sense that the Amartya masters have a message for the people who are listening right now. Right now. Um, well, it's not quite like a... It, for me, it's not so much that I could, I could really successfully channel what they're saying. Um, I could only give you a sense of what um, I believe. Um, and, and it would come down to um, a very simple statement, and that is what Nila Matara once said. And she said, worship love above all else, and, and you are not who you think you are. There's a, there's a kind of magic that happens in our consciousness, and I think there's a magic that happens, a kind of thrill that runs through the entire membrane of creation when we finally come to the point where we don't effort or try to be what we're not anymore. And when we come to this place of letting go and we let the fragrance that is that is seeking to be expressed through our hearts, through that love, when we allow that love to emerge through us unencumbered by our judgments or preferences, predilections, and, and that becomes our voice and we no longer set conditions on that, because we are no longer looking at ourselves, our identity, to somehow have to prove ourselves. When we no longer have to do that, I think that all the devatas, all the, all the masters, all the masters um, seem to just come through us with this raucous laughter and joyous, blissful sort of surge. It's as though finally you're getting it. And I think that that's really what the central push or the central move in the marching tradition is. And it comes down to something that we've all experienced once. I'm sure of it. When you were a child, perhaps, when you were walking maybe in a meadow and you were with your mother or your father or somebody dear, and you come across that beautiful flower, and you have no resistance to it. You don't judge it for what it is. You don't think of what it is. You don't try to captured in any way, you are just intoxicated by its beauty. And you realize that just by letting yourself have that intoxication, that, that ability to give no resistance to the beauty that is present in that flower or in that moment, you can't hold on to it. If something happens, it swells in your heart and you, you say, I have to give this away. And so you want to share it with the world. And so you run to your mother or to your friend and say, look, look at this beauty. And it's in that moment, in that kind of innocent moment, that we touch upon the same principle that is going on in, in the nature of the Master. The Master, in the realization of the beauty of who we truly are, in the um, Spanda Karikas, the, the, the Kashmiri Shaivanism in the East, they say it's in self, the splendor of self-recognition, Vimarsha, that you awaken. And I think that that's, that splendor of self-recognition is something that when we realize it fully, I, I, I know this, 
when we realize it fully, we have to pass it forward. And I think that's the spiritual journey itself. That's where we are headed as a humanity. Once we get ourselves out of this mire of confusion and, and, and ambition that we have locked ourselves into. I've been speaking with Aravinda Himadra. He's the author of the book Immortal Self, A Journey to the Himalayan Valley of the Amartya Masters. It's an absolutely beautifully written book and filled with tons of inspiration and magic. You'll enjoy reading it. Aravinda, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so good to talk to you too. And uh, thank you for inviting me on. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.